Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. And uh, let me uh, add my welcome to that of John's at the very beginning of our service. I'm so glad that you're here. If you have perhaps uh, never been before, or maybe you've come a few times, still not familiar with us, uh, and we're maybe not familiar with you, but you're so welcome. So glad that you're here. And it's really uh, wonderful to see uh, a number of people who are back from traveling. Of course, summertime in Dubai and the UAE, people travel. We've been praying for you as you've been gone. Uh, and some of you have not traveled yet, and so we're praying for you as you're about to go. And uh, we pray that as you perhaps meet up with family or uh, almost certainly will get to cooler climates, we pray that you'd enjoy it and you'd be refreshed before you come back here to Dubai. The great theologian Augustine lived in North Africa about 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. His mother was named Monica. She was a Christian. But Augustine himself resisted becoming a Christian for many years. He was a philosopher, and he decided that Christ was the only cure for his morally corrupt heart, but he wouldn't give in to Christ. He writes, I had now found the priceless pearl, and I ought to have sold all that I had and bought it, yet I hesitated. He goes on to write of God. You set me face to face with myself that I might see how ugly I was and how crooked and sordid, bespotted and ulcerous, and I looked and loathed myself. Well, Augustine plunged headlong into more and more immorality in his life, but God wouldn't leave him alone. When he was 32 years old, he reached a crisis point in his life. One afternoon, he was at home, he was there with his mother and others. His sin was making him miserable, and he fled into the courtyard of his home, and he cried out to the Lord, How long, O Lord? Augustine knew the Scriptures already, even though he hadn't given his life to Christ. And there he was, crying and crying out to the Lord, and he heard a neighborhood child calling out, from the next door, next uh, the house next door, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Well, he ran inside, and he opened up the Bible, and he read Romans chapter 13, verse 13, which says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. He writes of that time. Instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all gloom of doubt vanished away. Augustine had trusted Christ in that moment. He knew that he was forgiven and cleansed of all his sin. Every genuine Christian has a similar experience, even if it's not as dramatic. (laughs) There was a moment when Any of us, all of us who are Christians in this room, we knew that our sin would damn us to hell. And so, though we were tempted to hold on to it, we fixed our hope on Jesus instead. We trusted in Him. Now, not all of us know the day or the hour when that happened. Sometimes it's a subtle, if even real, experience. And if it is real, 
it has profound effects on the life of a person, both in this life and in the life to come. Now, how is that described in the Bible, this experience that I've just described that Augustine had? The experience of turning in faith to God. That's the theme of the psalm that we're studying this morning. If you'll turn in your Bible to Psalm 32, that is the psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 32. I believe we have a couple of Bibles at the very back of the room on the small table in the center. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one to look at, you'll be helped because I'm going to follow along with the text very closely and let God's Word teach us this afternoon. Follow along as I read. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You're our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. Well, the message of this psalm is God forgives sinners who confess and trust in him. God forgives sinners who confess and trust in him. Last week, we considered David's Psalm 14, which opened with extraordinarily bad news. Verse 1 read like this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Psalm 32 opens with the best news that sinners could ever hope for. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So the first point of the five points that I have for you this morning is this. We have full forgiveness. We have full forgiveness. That's in verses 1 and 2. The verses couldn't be more clear. Blessing, happiness, joy, all of those things that explain what it means to be blessed come to the person whose sin is forgiven by God. Now, sin has at least three names in these two verses. It's called transgression, sin, and iniquity. To sin is to miss the mark. 
to fall short of God's original intention for all people to be perfectly loving and just in all their thoughts, in all their words, in all their deeds. That was the way that Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden together originally. They experienced joy and fulfillment, happiness and love together with God. And it was something that we can only try to imagine. But they eventually disobeyed the loving boundaries that God had set for them. And those boundaries protected them from death. God gave them and everything else life. He was the source of life. He is the source of life still. But as creator of everything, God is also a judge. He stands as a judge over all creation. And when Adam and Eve rebelled through disobedience, the sentence was death and eternal punishment. Now, we've followed in their footsteps. We've rebelled too. And the sentence is the same for us, death and eternal punishment. And by ourselves, there's nothing that we can do to wipe our record clean. We can't do enough good deeds to cancel out our sin. We need God to take action. It's against Him that we've rebelled. And He's bound by His holy nature to punish sin. But how could God be both just to punish sin and loving to forgive like the Scriptures say? How could He do that? Well, David's psalm gives us some clues. The second part of verse 1 tells us that the forgiven have their sin covered. It's covered. To cover over a sin is to atone for it, to cleanse it, to wash it away. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded by God to bring to their temple an animal, a perfect animal without blemish, who would be sacrificed Their blood would be shed to atone for their sin. But those animal sacrifices were just a shadow or a sign of the one perfect sacrifice who would one day be offered up by God Himself. So God the Father sent Jesus, His one and only Son, to be that atoning sacrifice for our sin. His blood can cover All of our sin because it's the blood of a pure and sinless man, the only one who's ever lived. But how can we get his blood to atone for our sin? I mean, his blood is the means, but how can it be applied to us? Well, the first part of verse 2 tells us that the Lord doesn't count their iniquity against them. And the Apostle Paul explains that in Romans 4, the first few verses of Romans 4, in fact. And he actually uses the first two verses from Psalm 32 to prove his point. If you have your Bible, turn with me for just a moment to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, it's in the New Testament. You go past all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and we get to Romans. It's the first of the New Testament books that is a letter. It's a letter to the Roman church. So if you're at Romans chapter 4, look with me at verse 4. Now Paul says this, Now to the one who works, that is, does good deeds in order to earn God's favor, 
Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, it's his paycheck. If you do good deeds to try to earn favor from God, you're expecting a paycheck, essentially. He goes on in verse 5 to say, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And so Paul goes on then to quote verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32 as his proof. So Paul's point is this. For the sinner who looks to Jesus and his sacrifice of atonement on the cross and believes the promise from God that Jesus' blood can cover over his sin, for that person, God does not count their sin against them. And instead, he credits the perfect righteousness of Christ to them. They have a righteousness that is foreign to them and given to them as a free gift. That's what Paul explains. That means that they are justified. Just like John was explaining after we sang, Jesus paid it all. But are they completely justified? I mean, every sin? Is that what we're talking about here? Well, did you notice that word in verse 2? The little two-letter word. The Lord counts no iniquity against us. No iniquity. Nothing. Christian, all your sins are covered over. None of your iniquity is counted against you. If you trust in the promise that Jesus' shed blood atones, the big sins, the small sins, the ones that you don't even know about, in Christ you are fully forgiven. This is the blessed life, friends. This is the joy-filled life, to be forgiven. Sometimes those who are not Christians will want us to tell them that becoming a Christian offers something else. They say, forgiveness? Great, they say. Well, what about fixing my marriage? Or what about making me a, a better person? What about the money and the possessions that I'm going to need to, to get through life? What about peace and contentment? Or what about a cure for that deep loneliness that I feel? Well, there are so many blessings in Christ. And for those of you who are not Christians, some of these things could be what God has in store for you if you would trust in Him. But the forgiveness of sins, enabling us to be with God, to know Him, to be fulfilled in Him, that is the great prize of the Christian. It's the great doorway into anything else of value that he might choose to lavish on us. We'll always treasure what God did in Christ when he forgave all of our sin. When he gave us access to himself through Christ. We're blessed with full forgiveness and that's the point that David makes in verses 1 and 2. But just as John mentioned earlier in our service, we Christians still deal with sin in our lives. <laughs> if you're not a Christian and you do know Christians, you don't have to have known them for too long to know that. If you live with us, near us, close to us, you'll see our sin. 
Having our sins forgiven doesn't mean that we're completely free of sin. At times we sin and we even pay no attention to it, in fact. Rather than avoid it in the first place because it's what Christ died to free us from, we hold on to it. But God loves us so much that not only does He pay the debt for our sin, He works to free us from its grip. So verse 3 through 5 describes how He does that. The theme for verses 3 through 5 is conviction and confession. He leads us to conviction and to confession. David looks back to a time when he sinned and he refused to repent. Verses 3 and 4 describe what unconfessed sin does to a person when God's Spirit is working in them. Let me read it again for you. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David's unconfessed sin was like a virus raging through his body and his mind. His bones wasted away. He was groaning all day long. His strength dried up as in the heat of summer. (laughs) We know about that, don't we? I went running a few weeks ago. It was 4 p.m. I know, I don't know why. The temperature was soaring. The humidity made the air feel like I had this heavy, soaking wet blanket draped over me. And before I got back, I was dizzy. My heart rate was spiking, and I had to walk half the way home. And it's happened to many of you as well, particularly those of you who might work outdoors sometimes. Our very own Alan Formoso works outside in construction, and I was chatting with him last night on WhatsApp, and he told me how he had just gotten home. It was, I think, maybe 8.30 in the evening, and he was wiped out because he had had to be on a construction site for about four hours in the morning, maybe half the day, and it had just drained him out completely. You don't even have to be a construction worker to know how the heat can sap your strength. David is describing the effect of unconfessed sin. Sin enslaves us and it eventually leads to death, spiritual and physical death. But notice that God was at work in David as he held on to that sin. Do you see that? Look at verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. David is describing what the Bible calls the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, before he went to the cross, that he would send the Holy Spirit to be with them. He said this, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When God comes to rescue a sinner, where, whether they're lost and they're not a Christian, or whether they're a Christian who's holding on to their sin, God will work to give them, give them a deep sense that their sin is wrong. He'll unsettle them. He'll disturb them. And God does this by acting on a person's conscience. Now, a conscience is like an internal moral compass. Okay, It tells you and I the difference between right and wrong. Everyone has a conscience, but a conscience can be deadened by repeated sinning. 
A conscience is not aware of sin all by itself. A conscience can be deadened to sin, but it also can be very sensitive to sin when the Holy Spirit informs a person's conscience. And so a conscience needs to be taught or instructed with the truth of Scripture, either by maybe hearing someone teach truth from God's Word or maybe by reading God's Word. And then, if that happens, a taught conscience will be able to spot sin in our lives and let us know with warning signs and alarm bells that go off inside of us, sometimes even making us miserable, just like Augustine described, or just like David felt in verses 3 and 4. But you should know, this is a merciful act of God. This is God's mercy for us. To make us so uncomfortable with our sin that we're moved to turn to Him? Brothers and sisters, don't ignore the heavy hand of the Lord on you when He's making you uncomfortable because of your sin. Pay attention. Don't rationalize it. Don't explain it away. The discomfort is a merciful gift from God calling you to run from your sin and to run to Him. Now, if my child is running full speed towards a busy street, and I see that, and I begin to run towards them, and I catch up with them, and I grab them, maybe with all my strength, and I've I've been running fast, I'll reach for them, and I'll pull them back with all my might, and they may cry because of the force that I exert to save them, but I will have saved them from death and destruction, no matter what bruising might happen to them and no matter how rattled they might be because of what I've done. So too, God's heavy hand of conviction on the sinner is His loving rescue effort for you and I. By God's grace, the heavy hand of the Lord had its desired effect on David. In verse 5, he confessed his sin. This too is a work of God in us. This verse is the turning point in the psalm. David is turning to the Lord. He's acknowledging his sin to God. When we acknowledge our sin to God, it proves that the end of verse 2, which describes the forgiven man as having no deceit in his spirit, it proves it because we're no longer deceiving ourselves or trying to deceive God about the fact that we have sin. We're owning up to it. We're bringing it out into the open. The one who confesses is not covering his iniquity, like verse 5 describes. Now, most people's conscience will tell them that their sin needs to be covered. God, in His common grace, has given most people a conscience, and they have some sense, some sense of right and wrong, if not everything that God teaches us is right and wrong. We know that sin is significant and that it's shameful. Only rather than turning to God, we often try to cover it up ourselves. But it only leaves us in a worse situation than we started in. Confession to our forgiving God releases us from the enslaving grip of sin. Confessing our sin to Christ is a part of the first steps in becoming a Christian. And it is actually a part of the life of a Christian in an ongoing way as well. 
That's one of the reasons that we often have a corporate prayer of confession in our services. Now, today we actually prayed that corporate prayer of confession by reading Psalm 51 together. But many of our other services, someone will come up during the service and lead us in confessing to the Lord our sins. When someone leads us in a prayer of confession, together we're recognizing that we still battle with sin in our lives and that it's only through acknowledging our sins and turning to Christ for grace and mercy that we're able to grow and live lives that please Him. Let me give you some counsel about how to be led by these corporate prayers of confession that we pray in our services. The first thing is, listen to the scriptural theme that will likely be in the prayer of confession. There's a scriptural theme that's based typically on the passage that's being preached that day, on the songs that are being sung, or maybe on the scripture passage that's being read just before the prayer of confession. And based on that theme, we try to craft that prayer of confession to be confessing sins related to that passage. Secondly, if something is confessed by the person who's praying that doesn't apply to you, let it go and thank the Lord that He's kept you from that particular sin. Thank Him for that. There may be someone else in the room who's dealing with that sin. And that prayer of confession leads them to the Lord. Thirdly, let these prayers be a model to you. Let them be a model to you for your own time of devotion with the Lord. When you read Scripture, to think about, okay, what in the Scripture might point out particular sins that I might be guilty of that I need to confess to the Lord. Let your confession of sin become more and more specific and not simply a general, Lord, forgive me for my sin. When you do that, you allow the Lord to come in and work on you in specific ways in your life. Lastly, regardless of how much sin you can see in yourself, and maybe it's a lot, (laughs) always, always remember the full forgiveness that you have in Christ. I don't know if you noticed it together today, But after we had recited Psalm 51, John assured us of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Do you notice how quickly David's assurance of God's forgiveness comes on the heels of his confession? Did you notice it? Look at the last two lines of verse 5. Look there with me. David says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I mean, it's right there. Think of of how quickly healing and restoration came to the sick and the diseased when Jesus bid it go away. Think about that. As soon as he said, be healed, they were healed. That's how quickly and completely Christ's forgiveness comes to anyone who turns to him in faith-filled confession. There is no probation period for sinners who confess and repent. The blessing of full forgiveness is immediately ours, and the mom- it's the moment that we look at Christ in faith. Do you believe this, church? Do you believe it? 
David has recounted how the Lord mercifully convicted him and led him to confession. And then beginning in verse 6, he begins to unpack some of the wonderful benefits that come from being a fully forgiven person. So look with me at verses 6 and 7. This would be our point three this afternoon. We get timely protection. We get timely protection. Based on the forgiveness of sins that God readily offers, David urges his readers to confess and repent of their sin now. <laughs> Look at the beginning of verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. David says, do it now. Turn to God. He's telling us that though God is always there waiting to receive sinners who repent and turn to Him, sinners will not always feel the conviction of their sin and be prompted and moved to turn to Him. Let me say that one more time. Though God is always there waiting to forgive sinners, always, sinners will not always feel the conviction of sin and be prompted to repent and confess. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. The only reason He's ever far is because we're far from Him. I wonder if you've heard someone say something to the effect of, listen, I'll give my life to Christ when I'm older. Look, I'm just not ready. I have time. I'm not ready to change my life now. If you're not a Christian, do you sense that God might be making you aware of your sin? As you sit there this morning, or maybe sometime recently, you were uncomfortable with your own behavior. <laughs> you knew it was wrong. You, you know deep inside that there are consequences for your actions and your attitudes. Don't delay. Seek Him now. For every moment that you push Him away, that you push that feeling aside, you risk your heart hardening to the prompting of God. C.S. Lewis, in his fictional book, The Great Divorce, describes, surprisingly, a bus full of sinners people who are committed to their sin, and this bus magically brings them to a place either on earth or near heaven where they encounter angel-like beings who urge them to travel to the city where God dwells. They can actually see it. And in one scene, one of the bus riders encounters an angelic being, and this angelic being points to the man and notes that he has a large, very scary-looking lizard attached to his shoulder. It represents his sinful nature. The angel tells the man that he must let him remove the lizard so that he can go with him to the heavenly city. But the lizard fights back. He begins to whisper in the man's ear all kinds of lies and falsehoods and reasons why the man shouldn't let the angel do that. 
This is what the angel says to the man. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. That's what they're calling the man, the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want me to kill him? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so darned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. I'd need to be in, a, in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Well, you can read the rest for yourself. Turn to the Lord at a time when he may be found. Don't delay. When you turn to the Lord in repentance and faith, and the Lord becomes, he becomes your great protection from sin and death. And David describes it like a person escaping rushing floodwaters that threaten to drown him. And it's not just the Lord that provides protection, some kind of protection outside of himself. No, it's the Lord himself who is David's protection. You are a hiding place for me, he says in verse 7. You preserve me from trouble. Church, we are safe and secure in Christ. Troubles might come upon us in this life. You know, Jesus did promise that we would face problems and hardships if we followed him. And oftentimes, he rescues us even from these earthly crises. But the rushing waters, which we can be certain to be spared of, are the waters of judgment, the waters of final judgment. Christ himself was drowned in the waters of God's judgment on the cross for us. And he rose again to new life to be our protector and our hiding place. And all those who reject his forgiveness, they will be carried away by those waters while we remain secure. In the last line of verse 7, it's as if David imagines a large group of the godly who have fled to the protection of Christ. He says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Can you imagine what it must have been like when that first young boy from the trapped soccer team in Thailand, when he emerged from the mouth of the cave? Can you imagine what it would have been like? There were hundreds of rescuers and volunteers working there to save their lives from those rising floodwaters. The cheers, the celebration, the tears of joy. 
Oh, and imagine it when the last one was brought out. You know, I think there were millions of cheers that went up all around the world. Shouts of deliverance. The Lord surrounds His people with a company of the redeemed. That's the church. That is the church. And we celebrate when another sinner confesses and is forgiven. And that's why when we baptize someone, we want to hear the story of how they came to faith. We always ask someone to share that story with us publicly before we baptize them. We want to rejoice with shouts of deliverance. Many of you have learned to ask of one another over and over again, how did you come to faith in Christ? I've heard you ask that over the dinner table, maybe perhaps after our services. I've heard you ask it in my home when we've been gathered together in a group, and I love it. Those stories aren't meant to be told just once. No, no, they should be our favorite stories to tell. In fact, we should ask and hear those stories so often that we can tell one another's stories. I can tell Hemant's stories. I can tell Stephen's stories. I can tell Diosa's story. Ask someone this afternoon or, or maybe this week, how did you come to faith in Christ? Tell me again. Rejoice with them in the Lord who gives us timely protection. But the Lord doesn't just rescue us in a moment of crises, whether it's when we first turn to the Lord or in the trials of our lives. No, David goes on to remind us that those who turn to him in faith, God will give them ongoing daily wise counsel. That's what we get, wise counsel. And that we see in verses 8 and 9. It's the fourth point this afternoon. Look with me at verses 8 and 9 again. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So David writes as if it were the Lord speaking to us directly. I will instruct you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Did you know that God loves us so much that he refuses to leave us in the condition that we were in when we first turned to him? He loves us, he loves us that much. He's not just there for our times of crises. He'll not only forgive us of our sins, but He'll give us wise counsel each and every day to keep us away from sin, to guard us from sin so that we can grow in Him and flourish. After His resurrection, Christ sent the Holy Spirit to not only convict us of our sin, but also to remind us what Jesus taught and to give us understanding what only the Spirit can give. And so Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That spirit lives in each person who has confessed their sin and given themselves to Christ. In September, we're going to start up what we call core classes. They'll address different topics and subjects to help 
those of you who want to grow as a Christian. And the first one is going to be called Knowing God's Will for Your Life. I encourage you to come. They'll take place on Friday, perhaps in a late morning in someone's home here in Dubai. You'll learn in this first class about how God guides Christians. And here's a preview. He often guides us through His Word. He guides us through His Word. So you must immerse yourself in the Bible. You must. He also gives us guidance through other people who are filled with His Spirit, who might give us wise counsel. And so, therefore, sharing our lives with one another, talking with fellow church members about the big and the little decisions that we're making from day to day or maybe from week to week is so very, very important. It may be that as you make a decision, God wants to speak to you through another spirit-filled person in the church. He wants perhaps another church member to share a verse with you that will shed some light on your situation, give you counsel. You know, that's one reason why God has given elders to the church. We have five elders in our church currently, myself, Nissen, who prayed the pastoral prayer earlier, John, who led us in the service, an older Indian gentleman named Frank Sampson, who was not able to be here today, and another young man named Mark Donald. If you're seeking direction in life for decisions, I encourage you to seek out one of those men or perhaps someone else who you see as wise in the church. After the promises of ongoing wise counsel from God, he gives us the negative example in verse 9. Don't be like the horse or the mule. <laughs> Those are animals that have to be controlled with a bit and a bridle. That's the thing that goes in their mouth and it's attached to the reins that you steer a horse or a mule with. Now, it's the rare animal who can be controlled simply by spoken commands. I know you see that a lot in the movies, don't you? But it doesn't happen very often. It never happened with my dog, that's for sure. If you seek to be led by the Lord, if you seek to be guided by Him, don't be like a stubborn farm animal <laughs> that when you hear wise counsel, you push it aside and you decide you're just going to do what you want to do. Maybe you're going to baptize it, so to speak. You're going to say, no, I've prayed about it. Or maybe I have a peace about it, which effectively prevents anyone from questioning what you're about to do. Don't do that. Let me tell you perhaps how to approach the Lord and, and what should be your posture with Him in order to hear God's voice in your life. Not an audible voice, but a voice of God speaking to you in your spirit through Scripture, through wise people. I want to encourage you to approach the Lord with this kind of a posture, someone who would pray this kind of prayer. Lord, in this situation, I will do whatever you tell me is best to do. No matter what it costs me, no matter what choice I currently want to make, <laughs> I want to take the steps and set out in the direction that helps me to most glorify you. Change my heart 
so that I can discern your will for me. That is a posture of humble listening to the Lord. And if you repeatedly approach the Lord with a humble and teachable heart, willing to do anything and everything that he tells you to do, you will hear from him. He will guide you. Now these verses as well, verses 8 and 9, they help clear up any thought that what David has been suggesting in this psalm is a mere moment of confession to the Lord, followed by going on to live your life in any way you so choose. No, these verses dispel that idea. Verses 8 and 9 make it clear that God is calling sinners to confess their sin to Him so that they can receive forgiveness and begin to live a life in communion with God each and every day. A different kind of life than they lived before they had confessed and given their lives to Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you more like a stubborn horse or are you more like an obedient child? of your Father in heaven. Check your heart. He gives wise counsel to his children, and they listen. Now David finishes his psalm with a call to rejoice in the love of God for the forgiven. That's our fifth point this morning. We experience joy in God's love. Joy in God's love. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, David says, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The wicked are going to have sorrows, sometimes here in this life, but most definitely on the day of judgment. But the person who's confessed their sin is surrounded by God's steadfast love. It's steadfast because it's unwavering. It doesn't shrink. It doesn't recede. It doesn't go away. Do you know that God's love for you is at the maximum level that it could be today, just like it was on the day that you repented and trusted in Him? It hasn't risen and fallen. It's always at the maximum. Verse 7, David says, it was shouts of deliverance from fellow believers that surrounded the godly. And in verse 10, it's God's steadfast love that surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Do you see the various ways that Believers are described here. They trust in the Lord. They're called righteous. They're upright in heart. Those are names and descriptions of the person who's trusted in Christ. Now, David didn't know Christ by name. He lived about 900 years before Christ came. But David had the promises of God, and he trusted in them. And God eventually gave him a specific promise, a promise that one day a descendant of his own would sit on an eternal throne as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is his name. And in him and him alone is found full forgiveness and all of the benefits of being adopted into the family of God our Father. 
Merciful conviction and confession. Timely protection. Wise counsel from God. And the joy that we experience being in the love of God. Even in this life, friends, real blessedness is possible. The doorway is the forgiveness that we can find in Christ. One great preacher wrote almost 200 years ago, guilt makes a man into a coward, but pardon and acceptance before God makes them courageous. Guilt poisons poisons every cup of joy, but justification sweetens every cup of suffering. Guilt makes death the king of terrors, But Christ makes the believer shout, death is swallowed up in victory. Guilt will make the wicked cry out to the mountains to crush them and hide them from the face of God on the day of judgment. But the forgiven have every right to the tree of life that will be given and that will give them boldness on that day. The sinner saved by grace has all things and abounds because he has Christ for his sacrifice and Christ for His righteousness. Church, blessed is He whose transgression is forgiven. Be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You that You saw our great dilemma that we were burdened, we were miserable with our sin. And we thank you that you convicted us of our sin and you caused us to turn to you in confession. Lord, we praise you that you immediately applied the shed blood of Jesus to each and every one of us who trusted in you. We praise you. We shout our praises to you, Lord. Shouts of deliverance. Lord, and we praise you that Christ, in him, we have every spiritual blessing. We have timely protection. We have ongoing wise counsel. And we know, Lord, that one day when you return, we will be welcomed into your presence with great joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.